Welcome to Penn Law's Conversations About Justice podcast, formerly the Perspectives on Public Interest podcast. Today, it's my absolute privilege to be joined by Dr. Monique Morris. Dr. Morris is an award-winning author and social justice scholar with three decades of experience in the areas of education, civil rights, juvenile, and social justice. She is the author of many books, including Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools, and has written dozens of articles, book chapters, and other publications on social justice issues. Dr. Morris has lectured widely and was recently a 2018 TED Women Speaker. She is the founder and president of the National Black Women's Justice Institute and has served on the faculty at several universities. Dr. Morris, I can't thank you enough for speaking with me today. Of course, my pleasure to be here. I'd love to know more about your background and your story. What is it about your life that brought you to be able to follow this path and to pursue justice in a way that really, as far as I see, uh, tends to dismantling white supremacy, misogyny, shining light on you know, how amazing black girls are. And that's something that's often overlooked even by people who choose careers in social justice. It's interesting because one of my earliest memories is of growing up and during Black History Month, which we are now entering, they would always air movies about historical figures on public TV. No cable back in the day, right? (laughs) I have a little uh, notch in my forehead And one of the stories uh, that I remember watching very early in my life is the story of Harriet Tubman and how someone threw a rock at her head and she had a little notch in her forehead. And so early on, I thought I was Harriet Tubman reincarnated, (laughs) partly because my mother was super Zen and taught me about reincarnation and we would meditate and think about our existential being and all of these things at a very early age, didn't know what I was doing, but I had a feeling I was connected to this work by watching Harriet Tubman films, which is so strange, you know, that this is what comes to me in response to that question. But in many ways, I think it reflects a lot about how I was sort of naturally drawn to this narrative about the power of Black women and girls, about a connection I had spiritually to this work. And no matter what I did in in my movement, I felt like I needed to uplift equity. It's actually something I tell my daughters. I don't care what you do, just do it with an equity lens and an eye toward justice and freedom, right? Which I think has been how I've always tried to live, even when conditions weren't right for me. I've tried to see situations and uplift situations that I felt could be improved. Early on, wrote letters to the mayor, Feinstein, you know, people know her differently now, but I'm from San Francisco. Right, right. And I would, uh, I remember I came across an old letter that I wrote in elementary school to her about the condition of homelessness in San Francisco. It wasn't nearly as bad then as it is now, but I don't know, I, I see things and I see gaps and have felt a responsibility early on in my life to respond to those gaps that I see. That's really poignant. Thank you for sharing some of your story. And I will never think of Harriet Tubman uh, <laughs> right. the same way again. It's about the gash in her. Uh, and I remember that as uh, in my childhood, too, being really kind of moved by that, that story. So yeah. that's pretty neat. Yeah. <laughs> so as someone myself, this is a selfish question, but I'm trying to figure out how to both ground and bolster my social justice work in academic research. And so 
in that regard, you are just a hero uh, for one of many reasons. But can you talk about the importance of gathering and utilizing empirical data, as you did in your books, like Black Stats, um, to dismantle oppressive systems and to really kind of change social practices? Well, first, I you know really appreciate you um, uplifting me in that space. I enter this work humbly as a colleague and really believe that all of us have something to give to this work. And and that's kind of how I like to stay. But I do think that it's important to share that there are many ways to tell a story. And we, you know, like I said before, when I talk to my own daughters about this work, I say, do what you do, just do it with an equity lens and an eye toward justice and freedom, because I think that how we tell stories, particularly in the academy, tend to privilege a certain way of knowing. And all of that is legitimate and certainly recognized as generalizable and you know of value. But there are multiple ways for us to explore how we know something and how we come to deepen the rigor with which we interrogate this particular issue. Data can be gathered from any number of sources and can be anything. So how I approach this work and how I've come to this work has been certainly through, you know, the use of quantitative data to help tell a story, but also a series of qualitative, you know, data sources to deepen our understanding about specific conditions that help us really uncover where there are inequities and or injustice. Much of this work is not only about using data to help us interpret in any number of ways how oppression manifests in our lives. It also is a way for us to understand the spirit of resistance and for us to understand healing in a way that we are sometimes unaware of and, and, and unaware of how to uplift. And so my usage of data is often strategic And I think that using numerical data to help support narratives can certainly um, support, but I don't center the numbers in the way that other people may center the numbers. Mm -hmm. I like to center the humanizing effect and impact because for me, it's ultimately about these lived conditions and experiences that help us understand what the real impacts have been, as opposed to really thinking about, you know, these other ways of knowing. Now, I will say that sometimes in the academy, you know, that is not valued as much as the uh, quantitative statistical analyses that people tend to think tells the story. And ideally, if you're telling a story, then all these multiple ways of knowing and data sources will reveal similar trends so that we really do get to a truth. But what's important for me is in the collection of even the quantitative data, we have to center the voices and interpretations of people who are most impacted by those numbers, most impacted by those experiences. So the vast majority of my work is participatory action work. And I don't mean participatory in the sense that a lot of people use it where, you know, the affected community is treated as sort of a task force or ad hoc committee (laughs) that's consulted on occasion about the conditions they live in, but they really do help to drive the development of research questions. They really do help with the interpretation of the data. They help us understand what is data Mm -hmm. or what are the data. Right. Right? And so it's really, I think, about shifting our own lens, but also committing as academics in one sense, but also seekers of justice in 
in other ways, the knowing that people have um, as having lived this experience or being a part of a community that has experienced a collective engagement or condition. And all of that's of great value to me. So that's kind of how I move through the world. To your point about centering kind of the work on experiences, in the news recently, the horrifying news out of Binghamton, New York, of the four young Black girls who were strip searched and detained at middle school. From the reports that I've seen, school officials said that they did that because they suspected the girls were using drugs because they were acting silly and happy. Can you talk about how and why Black girls are not permitted in our society to be children and about how and why their bodies seem to be viewed as public property? This is an old tale. As much as we try to divorce ourselves from the lasting legacy of this institution of slavery, so much of it is embedded in our practices and the ways in which we've come to interact with and see Black girls. Having their bodies in a space where it is deemed appropriate to take off their clothes and view their bodies because they were giddy and happy at 12 in school, shouldn't they be giddy? Shouldn't they be thrilled to be there? Why is black girl joy such a problem? Why is this expression of happiness somehow seen as a disruption, right? Why is it disruptive? The routine ways in which the public interacts with black girl bodies in a number of industries often renders them vulnerable to being perceived as hypersexualized, either angry, excessively loud, or in other ways perceived to be problematic. But there's always this way in which we see Black girls and feel as if we have a right to invade their space to justify whatever it is that we suspect about them, either to confirm our beliefs or to do something else, right? Cause harm in one way, even if it's not the intention, or to stop their behaviors in another. The idea that the school felt it was justified to take the clothes off of these girls to search them, to me, is just unconscionable. It is also, though, I wasn't totally surprised. And I also wasn't surprised that there was an immediate statement saying that's not what they did. And I was also struck by the public statement from the parents saying, thank you for those who are willing to listen and believe our girls, listen to and believe our girls. Because when uh, black girls tell their truths, often they're dismissed as not having told the truth or having their experience somehow diminished or disregarded as not valid. And if they felt they were strip searched, they were strip searched. If your definition of strip search means that you removed underwear, so by your definition they were not strip searched, that doesn't diminish the harm if they perceive themselves to be to having been strip searched. We have to have these conversations about perspective, but we also have to have these conversations about why it is that we continue in 2019 mm -hmm. to feel that it's appropriate to engage with black girl bodies as if they are here for everybody. They're not here for everybody, right? And we are normalized, we're socialized in many ways through our popular culture, through our institutions, through a lot of ways in which we've come to understand interactions with black girlhood, that black girls are in the public domain for people's entertainment, are in the public domain for people's judgment, are in the public domain in a way that justifies a reading of their behavior as problematic. What I am encouraged by with this Binghamton case 
is how swift a broader community is to say no. This is not okay. That's different than how we've seen a lot of folks respond in the past. And I think increasingly folks are going to be standing up and saying, no, this is not okay to engage our girls this way. Because it's not. Absolutely not. And your comments kind of also remind me of how our consumption culture, and it seems like a lot of that is centered on um, centering the black female body as a unit to be consumed and appropriated. Yeah, that's been a part of this conversation, especially in entertainment for a while. (laughs) Used as props, used, you know, in various strategic ways, centered in conversations and in art in a way that has been exploitative. But really, we have to understand the kind of social conditioning um, that that provides for our communities, but also for our girls, where they are seeing these images and conditioned to see themselves in this way and conditioning those in their communities to also receive them in this way. And so without other interventions or other images or other opportunities for them to explore who they actually are, this becomes a strange truth for their lives and something that they will either reject if they feel that it is harmful to them or embrace if they feel that it will be a strategic tool for their success. Mm -hmm. We've got to consider other engagements and certainly to have a more nuanced understanding of what Black girlhood is and what Black womanhood is. Building off of that, these historical legacies of oppression are current kind of common senses um, that are frankly, dehumanizing around certain groups. How are they at play in a way that enables teachers, police officers, members of the media to find it acceptable to treat black girls in ways that they would never allow their own children to be treated? And I say this in the shadow of the recent R. Kelly documentary and the issues that it raises about how his behavior being allowed to go on for decades seems to be very grounded in the fact that he targeted black girls. First, I will respond to that by saying that R. Kelly has had no play in my ride since 1994. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Actually, 1992. That's right. And uh, it was pretty clear to me that his behavior was predatory. I remember feeling like an outcast when people would play his music and I would say, turn it off. Right. Or people would say, oh, I love his work. And I was like, yeah, but it enables him to be in this space. There are a lot of ways in which the revelations from certainly the R. Kelly documentary laid out for the public how the predatory behaviors um, in many ways would start at a school Mm -hmm. where he was hanging around the high school. And a lot of people from Chicago have been saying that for a long time. He hangs out at the high school. That's where he finds the girls. Or you see incidents from the video, the documentary, where you see younger women referring to him as Mr. Kelly and other adult men are giving girls his phone number, knowing what this is going to result in. So there's a broader culture that participates in the age compression that I tend to talk about that uniquely impacts Black girls, where Black girls are seen as little women in some ways. Their bodies are read as sexy at earlier ages. Georgetown Law's Center on Poverty and Inequality released a study on adultification that helps to situate some of this conversation in the constructs that we design around 
how we're reading certain behaviors or what our beliefs are about Black girls. The study found that Black girls are more likely to be perceived as knowing more about sex, to be more independent than their white peers, and that these disparities in perception begin when girls are very young. So you can't imagine a five-year-old being seen as more adult-like than her white peer, but that's what we're seeing per this study. In my discussions about age compression, it also provides a lot of room for us to protect our proximity to what we perceive to be powerful, which many different communities do. So this is not a condition that's unique to the Black community, I have to say that, right? This is about people protecting their proximity to power. And when a community feels like it doesn't have much power, or we see conditions participating in the oppression of individuals or developing narratives about sexually predatory behaviors of a particular group, we're quick to defend the group that might have been uh, wrongfully accused of a lot of crimes in the past and in the present. It doesn't mean, though, that we are in a position to excuse behaviors that are still rendering harm to those that are even less powerful. But we still participate in these politics of power. So a lot of folks defend, you know, the R. Kelly's of the world. So it's not just one man. And I'm very clear about that. Yes. There's that uncle. There's that person who hangs around too much at the high school or the soccer coach, you know, all these people who Mm -hmm. are engaging in predatory behaviors that I believe should be held accountable for their predatory behavior. And we have to stop protecting this behavior because we want to protect our own proximity to whatever power we perceive that person to have. We have collectively more power. And yet we still say we want to divorce the artist from the work, or we want to say, I don't know him in that way, or I don't know her in that way. Because one thing that was clear from a lot of this conversation that we've been having lately about this kind of predatory behavior is that boys too suffer from sexual violence and uh, assault as children. And we have to include them in this conversation in order to facilitate many of the, the way in which we approach healing in, in our communities, in our families, et cetera, certainly in our schools. So it's important, you know, to understand, uh, I think, the documentary in a broader context of how we've come to understand childhood sexual assault, but also to understand that um, when a girl is 13, She's still a girl when she's 16. She's still a girl. She's an emerging woman, but she's not a woman yet. And so we have to engage in conversations about how we both support her capacity to become the woman we know she can be, if that's what she feels is right for her, but also understanding, too, that it is our job as adults to create parameters that can facilitate safety very clearly and unapologetically. Terms like age compression, I mean, you're you're very gifted in kind of, I think, changing the lexicon and utilizing language in a way that I think moves conversations forward. So I know kind of the school to prison pipeline terminology, right? You have moved beyond that and offered school to confinement pathways. You speak a lot about exclusionary discipline. Can you help us to understand more about why this type of nuance is so critically important? I just try to use language if it's emergent in the field and guided by the input of activists, advocates, and people who live this experience that can actually move us closer to understanding what these phenomena are. You know, I 
I think that, you know, when I talk about these issues, I just try my best to use language that is consistent with what I hear people engage with who have been living this experience and what I personally feel reflects the condition best. I don't know that we have the perfect language for what we're feeling and experiencing right now outside of oppression. <laughs> it's oppressive. It's not good. It is fixable, right? But those are descriptors, right? So it's important for us when we're exploring all of these conditions to figure out, you know, how we've come to name it, what experiences we were using to understand it, and who was left out of that framework. So I started using school to confinement pathways because I felt like it more accurately reflected the conditions that I was seeing and hearing from girls as they were describing the multiple pathways that you know impact their contact or that facilitate their contact with the juvenile court and criminal legal system. I wanted to use confinement because in many ways in the public domain, we conflate confinement, detention, and prisons and jails, but those are actually different institutions. They serve a, a similar function, but on the juvenile court criminal legal side, those are different institutions. Right. So I wanted to be clear that there are multiple forms of confinement, not all of them you know, about who's on probation and who's not, or who's in custody and who's not. But also that the pathways that we've come to recognize in our girls have largely been, or to, to confinement and to some of these aspects of criminalization, have largely not been a part of the conversation when we've described school-to-prison pipeline efforts and, and conditions in the past. We were not mapping sexual violence as a part of the pathways. We were not mapping dress code violations. We were not exploring the ways in which intimate partner violence on the school campus was facilitating some of this. We weren't responding to trauma in, in a centered way in this, even though we know that those are very present in the lives of a lot of girls who get in trouble. It's also very present in the lives of boys who get in trouble. But in our effort to capture what this is, we've condensed the experience in such a way that I think does a disservice to our capacity to find solutions to this crisis. So for me, I try to use language that will move us toward really identifying then how we disrupt these cycles of violence in our communities and how we interrupt the oppression that is creating this condition. You know, language is language and some people care more about it than others. But for me, I try to, you know, pick words and I try to use words that are evolutionary. I may change tomorrow <laughs> if, if the condition changes right. tomorrow, using different words to describe it. And I think that's part of our process. Uh, you know, I used to tell my students that revision is the thinking person's game. So if we are stuck, we're not thinking. We've got to continue to revise. We've got to continue to do better. So earlier you referenced the Georgetown Juvenile Justice Research. And is, was that the same study that found that black girls are 30 times more likely to be arrested no, than, that's a, that's yeah. a different, that's than, a different than study. white and uh, girls and boys combined, which is, you know, on the face of it, astounding, I think, to a lot of people and to those of us in this work, not so surprising, sadly. But so what's going on? How do we kind of get people who aren't in the trenches un to understand just how profoundly horrifying that type of statistic is? And how are black girls' behaviors being read by those in power? And why are they being punished differently for behaviors that, when carried out by others, uh, seem to be considered completely normal? Well, I'll let you give the statistics with, 
without my interruption this time, just to make sure that you have it on record. Yeah. So, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that black girls are 30 times more likely to be arrested than white girls and white boys combined. That was specifically a study that was done by the Juvenile Justice um, Center at Georgetown in partnership with the Rights for Girls. I think that much of how we've... Part of the reason why we don't know about this is because we don't talk about girls much. I talk about girls a lot, and um, my colleagues talk about girls a lot, but mostly when we're talking about contact with the criminal legal system or juvenile court system, we talk about boys, and that's because boys are the larger number. But I don't believe that because your number is small that your experience should be disregarded, especially when you see the kinds of disparities that are present among girls. In so many jurisdictions and districts, we see that, you know, boys of color, particularly black boys, are experiencing criminalization at rates that are undeniably off the charts and worthy of our intervention. I have long said that the investment in black men and boys is a necessary investment. But in those same jurisdictions, we're also seeing the disparities play out among girls and younger women. And yet we had this narrative, this dominant narrative that the girls and and the women were fine That's what people would say. Oh, they're fine. We really have to invest in the men and boys, which just deepened the pain. You know, I used to say that neglect is a form of violence. Erasure is a form of violence. And so not paying attention to what was happening among the girls and women in many of these communities just made it a lot easier for the pain and oppression to fester. And so we result with these egregious rates of racial disparity playing out um, where they shouldn't be. Not to say that we want men and boys to be in contact with the criminal legal system, because we don't. But we also have to recognize that because we have these dueling narratives about the performance of black women doesn't mean that there aren't black girls and women in pain and that they're not disproportionately in pain when you just look at what's happening among women. It's important to stop comparing apples to oranges because it erases the experiences of the apples, (laughs) right? If the orange is more more pungent in taste, that's what we will get. We'll walk away with the orange, not experiencing all that's happening with the apple. We've tried to be in spaces, um, I've tried to be in spaces where we uplift the conditions of those who are on the margins and on the margins of the margins so that we can begin to fully understand what's happening with many of our young people. We know that trans women, non-binary women of color, particularly black trans women are experiencing violence and victimization in schools, out of schools, in communities, in ways that Uh, surpass many of our groups that we are very comfortable talking about. And we have to begin to have a much more um, rigorous exploration of how we come to really generate conditions of safety for all in our community. The only way to do that is to begin to center those experiences and build out from there. So as we think about building out and in the context of being in the law school, where do you see the role of social, social justice-minded attorneys in this kind of puzzle that we're trying to put together towards fixing things, as you kind of signaled earlier? The law is your domain. <laughs> and for those who are practitioners and enforcers, they're often operating within the confines of the law, right? What does the law provide? What does the law say? What does the law... Um, encourage? What does it discourage? All of those kinds of things. There is often an interpretation of existing laws that can be used to advance 
some of the work or advance some of the harm. So I think it is important for social justice-minded attorneys and aspiring attorneys to continue to, to immerse themselves in the activism and work that is coming from the affected communities. Even if it's as a bystander, you don't have to participate actively, but you should be aware of where people are exploring their own conditions and what narratives are organically building in those spaces and engage them where they would like for you to enter. We are in a climate where so much of our conversation about justice is informed by folks who spend very little time with the affected communities on issues. We write laws and policies for young people without talking to them. We draft alternatives to incarceration without talking to formerly incarcerated people or currently incarcerated people. We talk about food justice without having had a conversation with someone who's hungry or starving. A lot of this, it makes no sense to me. <laughs> So I think that for those who are really interested in these conversations about justice, you have to be committed to not participating in deepening this oppression. Right. You got to talk to people. You got to have relationships so that what we produce, what we're doing in this work has meaning um, and significance to those who are most impacted by these issues. Um, so, you know, I just say stay, you know, in, in abreast of social science research. Make sure you're reading a lot. And I know that's a tall order to ask law students to read even more, but it is important. Just as I say the same thing to those in the social sciences, like read some of these you know, law review articles. We are committed to our discipline, but let's expand really what we are knowing and what our connections are to this other work, because the narratives and work that is happening organically in these disciplines should be intersectional, should be cross-sectional. And it is something we don't take advantage of enough. In the kind of public interest space, one of the critiques that's often mentioned from a kind of racial justice standpoint is that a lot of the attorneys who are able to pursue public interest careers tend to be white and lately tend to be white women. And so thinking about kind of how you just assessed this distance that almost feels like it's the norm and how we operate as a society where you have the elites deciding for everyone else how their lives should unfold with almost complete disconnection from the actual experiences of the people. There is a sense within that critique that the very people attempting to kind of fix a broken system may be unequipped or unaware or not necessarily the right people to be doing that. How, how does that sit with you? I think of um, Michelle Obama's recent book where she mentions kind of casually, but it really struck me about how some of her friends and colleagues, they were f white and they were from a more financially privileged background. And so they could pursue types of careers and things that never even really came into her consciousness because she was very focused on having a career that would be able to pay her debts and things like that. My response to that is really, ultimately, if you're in this work to be a part of the solution, welcome. But take off your cape. You're not here to save. The savior mentality across disciplines, across industries, is destructive and reinforces the myth of white supremacy. It's like teaching to the oppression, right? It's like service to the oppression. Right. And so it's important for us, if we're in this work, if we are 
committed and privileged enough to stand and work with communities that are experiencing harm or conditions in our communities or you know being a part of a community that is responding to conditions of harm in our communities, then we have a responsibility to be co-constructors of solutions. We don't have the answers. I believe in distributed knowledge. And I think all of us have to be in a space where we come to understand how that is operationalized in our day-to-day work. It's not often encouraged because it's hard work. It's really hard to step into a community and say, I want to be a part of a solution and I know you have the answers. Because there's a wedge of distrust. There's a, a feeling that even if they do trust you as an individual, they can't trust the system or agency that you might represent that has been part of a tapestry of harm in their lives and for generations. There is a failure among our communities to respond fully to the historical traumas that inform how individuals understand even these social conditions that we, in our public interest, desire to, to somehow remedy. And even our definition of what is remedy could be different. I think it's important for those who are interested in this work, however you come to it, to recognize that it is not your problem individually to solve, but you are a participant in a community that has to be fully engaged in a response. The the social issues that public interest attorneys, social scientists, advocates, these these are big issues. (laughs) And we need all of us to really be in consideration of what the others are bringing and to also be in a space where we recognize that if we do have a skill that we want to apply to this work, that we should bring it. But we have to do so with the intention of not coming in to take over. We have to do it with the intention of being part of a community response. And that is, you know, I will recognize my own bias and my own worldview you asked. (laughs) I I wanted it. (laughs) And you delivered, so thank you. I noticed with a lot of the students that I work with, I mean, I think your answer is so helpful because there seems to be this stuckness that happens where folks are kind of like, I know intellectually that I need to be kind of guided by this community and educated by the community. But what that looks like in a day-to-day kind of way of addressing injustice and how that bumps up against things like uh, social norms and behaviors and language that's used, a lot of students find themselves really at odds. And so... Well, it's also, it takes time. Right. So there's an impatience with folks when they're in this work. They're saying, why don't they recognize that I'm here to be helpful? Why don't people recognize me? That's not me. I'm not that person. Right. And it's important to recognize that even though you may not be individually responsible for harm, if you are coming from a community that has been part of a person or group of people's tapestry of harm, then you become an agent of that. And so we have to continue to do our own internal work to dismantle racism, racialized gender oppression, ableism, all the intersections, the transphobia, homophobia that Um, you know, sort of reverberates throughout communities is all a part of this as well. So it's really, um, you know, and increasingly Islamophobia across the board. We we really have to um, continue to do our own internal work. So the thing that I like to say is, you know, a long time ago in another life, I used to do these, you know, trainings on cultural competency. And 
you know, people like to think they're competent or they're not. And we have to continue to understand that this is a full continuum of learning. If you don't continue to evolve and learn, then again, you've stopped thinking. (laughs) So we have to continue to hold ourselves to new standards. They should evolve. They should move. You can't come in like I'm the woke one. So I'm good. It has to be like I am committed to this practice of becoming who I want to be. And that involves my participation in this work. How should I enter? It's really like a lifetime commitment to revision. That's how I see it. Right? In a sense. (laughs) So, and this idea of wokeness being a destination instead of this lifelong process is an interesting thing to kind of break down. One of the things that I notice a lot is given our current kind of the state of our current country, politically and socially, um, it's very normal for folks to act like things have never been this bad. It's getting worse. And I bristle at that thinking, wow, have you looked at the history of our country and kind of where the ancestors of our brothers and sisters who aren't necessarily white or privileged in other ways, you know, have been enduring for centuries. So from that perspective, kind of this intersection of these historical legacies and current problems, where do you find your hope and your belief that things can and will get better? So I knew we were going to enter a neo-redeemer era after Obama. I'm a student of history. (laughs) So, you know, after Reconstruction, there were the Redeemers. Uh, Obama represented a sort of Reconstruction. So I knew the backlash was coming. We could feel it. Those in the work are very disgruntled in some ways by the stagnant nature of our development as a country on this issue of race and its intersections with other conditions and identities. That said, I know some kick-ass organizers, and they are so committed to this work that they have been able to find ways to uplift narratives and victories in spaces that some thought were not possible. And I think it's important for us always in this work to set our intentions Whatever we do, do it with an equity lens and an eye toward justice and freedom. I read narratives of enslaved people a long time ago, lots and lots of narratives as a part of my work and part of my study. And I have read narratives of colonized people, of indigenous folks whose survival was not to be. And... Yet they live on, their stories live on, their energy lives on. So I believe we just have to stay the course, but also get creative in how we articulate what's happening and also recognize that a different reality is possible. Um, There are a lot of folks who are like, I will never vote again, right? (laughs) Because the electoral college. Yeah, I'm not a part of that. You know, I still remember and am told often by my mother the way my grandmother and and great grandparents walked and marched so that we could participate in this system and how proud they were to cast ballots where, you know, folks today just kind of disregard that as a privilege. And 
I personally am just not willing to participate in that because it feels like I then have uh, participated in my own oppression because I'm succumbing to, you know, the design of it all. I also really think it's important for those of us in this work to be global citizens. We have a very narrow perspective in this country about what justice is and what the greatest is and this narrative of exceptionalism that somehow seems to make us feel like a certain way. And I think that it's really important for us to connect with other communities around the world the way that we certainly can with all of this technology that we have available to us and information available to us to sharpen our critique of structures of oppression and to help us understand different ways of mobilizing to be healthy and whole. We have an emphasis on dismantling structures in our spaces particularly in public interest work, and less of an emphasis on healing. But I think that there's a role for healing in all of it, and there has to be a role for healing in all of it so that we can be well enough to do this work. <laughs> so I have to say that to anyone who's listening to this and interested in public service is that this is not easy work. So you have to take care of yourself. There's a lot of vicarious trauma in this work, so you have to take care of yourself. There's a lot of burnout in this work, so you have to take care of yourself. And so being mindful of that as you're entering this work is essential. And so a lot of the discourse around self-care seems a bit superficial in that it's like run a bubble bath and go to yoga and not to discount the importance of those things. But how do you in your life practice self-care? Uh, I go to Soul Cycle and yoga. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I just think. And I also will watch silly movies if I need to. And I spend time with my girls. And I love, 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 even though it's work. My self-care also involves having the conversations with young people in all the cities that I go to to help me understand that what I'm doing is useful. You know, when you do this work and you don't feel your work is of value, it's easy to get burned out. But when you see young people shift and when young people, you know, randomly tag me on social media or write me letters or write me notes and emails from around the world, I'm like, wow, that is something that I can use to celebrate because that means that what we do together is meaningful. Because often those letters from young people are to say that they want to do this too or that they want to be involved in this work, right? There are a lot more healers out there than we know. And so we just have to find each other, and that work is happening. Well, I'm very conscious of your time, and you've been so generous with us <laughs> the entire day. So I want to thank you for this really amazing conversation. I hope you'll join us at some point again in the future, and thank you to our, our listeners. This podcast was produced by the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Learn more about public interest lawyering at law.upenn.edu slash public service. Thanks for joining us.